Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about what it means to be resilient. We examine the habit of buying books and never reading them. We celebrate a popular ballpark organist who has found a way to keep playing during the shutdown. We visit three English friends who are playing out a global travel fantasy. And we look at a book that offers advice for being resilient in adversity. In the Old Dogs Conversation, we chat with John Madden, a maker of extremely custom, extremely expensive puzzles, which are enjoying renewed popularity during the pandemic. Stay with us. Hey, Paul. Yo. What is on your mind? Um, you know, in this time of the pandemic and uh, being locked at home, uh, do you think that you're being resilient? Now, that's a good word, resilient. Resilient. Yeah. Like, do you end the evening sobbing for an hour? <laughs> that would not be resilient. Yeah. Um, I think I have good days and bad days. Probably everybody does. But, uh, you know, there are some times when I feel more up to the uh, challenge of um, learning how to cope. Uh, it's maybe the general background feeling that I have the toughest time with. What about you? Oh, you mean the impending doom? <laughs> Possibly. I think by and large, it's either stupidity or it's resilience. <laughs> I am very positive. It takes an awful lot to make me feel like there's no hope. Um, but, you know, maybe a better question is also, were you more resilient when you were younger? Well, uh, I was trying to recall some of the times in my life where I had to be resilient. And as I'm sure all of us did when we were younger, you know, going through teenagehood, uh, you've got to be resilient and going to high school even, then going to college and being far away for the first time on your own. Uh, I think that you learn a lot of things about being resilient and how to cope with the, the newness of it all. And through your life, you know, you've got problems with jobs, let's say, and problems with relocation to strange cities. Uh, it happens again and again, and hopefully um, you you learn more as you go. But I think it's a good question whether you do a better job when you're younger or not. I don't know, because naturally you don't have as much experience when you're younger. What do you, what do you think you, is happening? Well, I, I think I was probably more resilient in my 20s. When I got out of college, I was starting a career. It, everything seemed possible to me. And any roadblocks that I had, I jumped over them, walked around them. Uh, I just felt like a superhero, really? I guess, in some ways. Now, that could be chalked up to stupidity. Well, you uh, seem to be mixing those two terms a lot in uh, what you have to say. So maybe they're the same thing. What, stupidity and resilience? Yeah, think about it. Or, or maybe as as we get older and we have more quote unquote wisdom, um, the process of being resilient takes a little longer. Whereas when we're younger, it's uh, it's kind of like a straightforward path. You just go for it. Well, I think that as a younger person, I sometimes looked before I leapt. Uh, sometimes with mixed results. 
Oh, come on now. You just you moved to the South Seas in the Peace Corps. Now, don't tell me that wasn't impulsive. And that was impulsive. Resilient. Well, it was resilient, but impulsive. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, but the way you lived your life in the Peace Corps, you had to be resilient. You oh, yeah. you had to depend on your own your own skills, right? Yep, you had to be resourceful as well as resilient. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and stupid. Stupid keeps coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's the the fine the, the the cliff stick here is that as you get older, you have so much more to consider before you make a choice. Yeah, uh, because you've had a lot of dead ends and wrong paths when you were younger. Okay, so we've got a few uh, buzzwords here. We've got uh, resilience. Uh, we've yep. got stupidity. Uh, oh yeah. We, we have caution, and we have resourcefulness. Is there anything else you want to add to that? No, it sounds like a self-help book to me. <laughs> Do you have a problem with buying books that you never read? Well, you're not alone. This pod nugget is from the HuffPost for April 23rd, 2020. Buying and reading books is harmless if you actually read them. But many people have found that their buying exceeds their ability to read what they buy. Sometimes the title or the subject of a book is just too darn enticing to resist the impulse. Or maybe it's a book that's been recommended as brilliant, definitive, or maybe essential. Or in my case, it has the phrase for dummies in the title. <laughs> now, if you had to drive to a bookstore to purchase the book, the impulse would soon wear off. However, with Amazon, buying is just one click and delivery is often a day away. So in a matter of seconds, your book is on the delivery truck, not to mention Kindle. Once it arrives, the memory of why you bought the book is never really strong enough to actually open the cover. And soon you have a pile of books that you will never read. The desire to buy more books than you could ever read, it's common enough that the Japanese have a word for it. Sondoku. Don't they always have a word yep, for it, Jim? Yep, yep. This is roughly translated as the stockpiling of books that will never be consumed. Now as habits go, Sondoku is inoffensive, unless the piles of unread books are so high that you could be buried alive in a strong wind. Assuming, of course, that you keep your piles of books outside. Josh Cantor is the organist at Boston's Fenway Park. Now, baseball games aren't happening, as you know, but uh, he has found a way to deliver the seventh-inning stretch from his home. This item is from the Washington Post for April 7, 2020. In late March, when baseball was postponed, Josh video-streamed a half-hour of music and commentary on his home organ. The online response was so good that he did it for another day and then another until he now delivers a daily half-hour show he calls The Seventh Inning Stretch. The show is aided by his wife, who takes requests while Cantor supplies music and baseball-related stories and a wide variety of songs. His shows have included a range of music from Motown and polkas to The Clash and The Replacements. He enjoys the hosting as much as the playing, since it's an opportunity to show off his humor and deep musical knowledge. Josh Cantor has a rare musical gift. He can play any song by ear. When he gets a request for a song he doesn't know, he can listen to it for 30 seconds and then play it on the organ. His keyboard skills are well known by other musicians. In fact, he may be the only team organ 
organist who gets called on stage with the band Wilco and tours with members of Blondie and R.E.M. There's no telling how long his streaming show will last, but for now, it's good therapy for Boston's baseball fans and for Josh Cantor. You suppose he'd play Louie Louie if I asked him? You could ask him. Then you'd have to hum it for 30 (laughs) seconds. Three ladies in Great Britain came up with a plan to weather the coronavirus quarantine that involved Netflix and lots of wine. This item is from the Washington Post for April 6, 2020. The three ladies were Carol Spark, 74, Dottie Robinson, 73, and Doreen Burns, also 73. They'd been friends for more than 40 years, supporting each other through child-rearing, deaths, marriages, and divorces. The three ladies are single and live near each other. The original plan was to pick one of their homes and ride out the coronavirus together, fortified by wine and back episodes of The Crown. But these plans were changed when Spark developed pneumonia, and the other two had to proceed without her. As a consolation, they came up with an elaborate travel fantasy to keep themselves entertained. For the next two months, they would pretend to be on a luxury Mediterranean cruise and 25 years old again. Carol Spark joined the other two by Skype as they played out their fantasy trip. The BBC got wind of their plans and interviewed them for a show called BBC for Breakfast. The hilarious interview developed a following and the three friends became an overnight sensation. They were compared to the Golden Girls, the late 80s TV show that has a cult following in Great Britain. To give you an idea of how the trip has progressed, Doreen Burns said, Carol has a keen sense of the ridiculous. We dined virtually last night, and Robert Redford showed up, and then the race was on for the first dance. Then Roger Moore turned up, and Dottie promptly melted. We sail for Greece tonight, so lots of laughter awaits, even though we are apart. Dottie added, yes, it's a little silly, but it keeps us smiling. We've noticed right now that people seem to be kinder and have an all-in-it-together feeling. Manners have made a return, and there's nowhere to rush to. We truly hope that stays. And we'd like to add, those three beautiful old dogs sure know how to howl at the moon. Maybe we can meet you for a virtual dinner in the Greek islands. Uh, We'll bring the wine. So who'd you like to meet in your fantasy trip, Paul? Uh, (laughs) I'm married. (laughs) the self-imposed quarantine due to covid19 has tested our patience our relationships and maybe our sanity so have you been resilient in these troubled times this pod nugget is from the new york times for june 18th 2020 Dr. Stephen Southwick, professor emeritus at Yale University School of Medicine, has co-authored a book called Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. His advice, if you can cope today with all that's happening in the world around you, then when you're on the other side of it, you'll be stronger. Dr. Southwick continues, many, many resilient people learn to carefully accept what they can't change about a situation and then ask themselves what they can actually change. Banging your head against the wall and fretting endlessly about not being able to change things lessens your ability to cope. No kidding. You know, banging your head against the wall also lessens your ability to think. (laughs) Or to actually function. Interviews with highly resilient individuals, those who have experienced a great deal of adversity and have come through it successfully, show they share the following characteristics. They have a positive, realistic outlook. 
They don't dwell on the negative and instead look for opportunities in bleak situations. They have a moral compass, a solid sense of what they consider right and wrong. They have a belief in something greater than themselves, often found through religious or spiritual practices. They are altruistic with a concern for others and a degree of selflessness. They're dedicated to causes that give them a sense of purpose. They accept what they cannot change and focus energy on what they can change. They have a mission, a meaning, a purpose. Feeling committed to a meaningful mission in life gives them courage and strength. And finally, they have a social support system, and they support others. Very few resilient people go it alone. So, Jim, what does it mean if I had three out of seven of those characteristics? (laughs) (laughs) Better just uh, hide under your bed in a crisis. Ah, that I can do. All right, here's a question for you. Would you buy a hand-cut jigsaw puzzle for $900? Well, John Madden, the owner of Par Puzzles, knows plenty of people who will. Madden runs a family business that specializes in extremely expensive, one-of-a-kind, hand-cut wooden puzzles. Despite the hefty price tag, the Maddens are finding a new market in families who have the means and the time to indulge in a custom Par Puzzle. Uh, John, could we start off by you telling us a little bit about your puzzle company, and how you came to apprentice there. Uh, okay, uh, so the puzzles have been around since the 30s, um, and they were always referred to as the Rolls-Royce of jigsaw puzzles. And they were started by a man named uh, John Henriquez and Frank Ware. And they uh, always dealt with the uh, most elite, from the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the... Whitney's, the Fords, and uh, there was a man who did the majority of their cutting. His name was Arthur Gallagher, and uh, he was my friend's dad. I knew him since I was a little kid, and uh, I, I always worked for myself, so I had some time, so I went over there and just uh, learned how to uh, make the puzzles, and uh, I've since taken it over back in the probably early 70s and uh, I've since taught my uh, son and uh, he continues to uh, make the puzzles with myself. John, why don't you tell them what's special about par puzzles and what goes into making one? Well, first off, they're all wood, they're all one of a kind, they're all handmade uh, they have all little figural pieces in them. I refer to them as the uh, silhouettes or uh, the clues to solving the puzzle because these little uh, figures uh, have specific uh, parts that serve as clues. They're, maybe their arms or maybe their heads. Uh, they're all shaped differently than your standard pieces. And we personalize uh, puzzles with names and monograms and dates and pictures and happy anniversary. (laughs) So it's the personalizations and the intricacy with the little figural pieces that make PAR very unusual and still retain that Rolls-Royce title. Wow. Well, it's kind of puzzling me 
why do they need clues? Can't they just look at the picture on the box? What picture? There's no picture. <laughs> no, no picture. picture You're trying to cheat. There's no picture that comes with it. You know, many a uh, person might ask uh, afterwards, hey, could you please send me a photo or uh, no, no picture is included. And a lot of people who are fanatical, they'll do them even upside down, I've heard. Well, John, you do these free form, correct? Like there's no yes. template that you use. No, there isn't. You know, we'll draw out the... Uh, you know, the, the figural pieces, and we'll draw out all personalizations, uh, dates, monograms, uh, names. Uh, everything is uh, hand-cut. Well, John, what do you think is probably the most um, elaborate, the most uh, spectacular puzzle that you've ever made? And who was it for, if you can tell us? Um, I would say I made some very unusual uh, puzzles. Uh, for George Bush uh, Sr., uh, he, he used to love all themes of uh, China. In his day, uh, his dad, uh, Prescott, was a, a big orderer of the puzzles in the day, and George Jr. is still a big uh, purchaser of the puzzles today. George Bush Sr. would always like um, Asian themes, being the ambassador to China in his day. And he would always have them personalized, uh, you know, with monograms or Barbara's name or his, uh, you know, his and her names. Interesting. John, uh, since this is free form, <laughs> has it ever happened that you get halfway through a puzzle and there's a big oops? <laughs> you, uh, you hiccup or cough and suddenly the uh, jigsaw goes off the edge or something? I think it's uh, probably, you know, somewhere where I'm deep into a puzzle uh, was, I think I made a, this lady's name was Rebson. She owned Reblon. Um, and I did her monogram upside down. <laughs> and, you know, but uh, all, all people of that ink, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in the day, they were uh, big orderers of the puzzles. Jimmy Durante, Marilyn Monroe, um, all people you know that were uh, well connected and well uh, funded. Today, I have a client here. Uh, he's been ordering for maybe twenty years, twenty puzzles at Christmas, and I'm Santa. Uh, I just <laughs> uh, I take care of the whole family. He's Starts off my Christmas, as I mentioned, probably for the last 20 years mm. with this same order, same uh, family members. Uh, so wh where do you get your artwork? Uh, what I've seen online of the puzzles, this seems to be very distinctive stuff. Well, we'll, we'll get specific things. Let's say somebody's looking. I'm doing this Guernica, it's called. It's a Picasso. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll get through um, art.com, but we have uh, some art representatives that we deal with exclusively, and we use their images. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of people will send, you know, requests. They'll say, I like Chagall or Matisse or Renoir, and uh, they'll send us different prints or photos that they would like to have enlarged or blown up. Uh, to make a puzzle. 
sometimes they'll say, uh, we love the beach, we love the ocean, we love, uh, you know, the mountains, and and we'll try to maybe make a collage out of uh, different, um, you know, mountain scenes or uh, ocean, maybe sailboats or pelicans or things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So we'll try to get their general idea of what they like and what they enjoy and um and then i'll personalize it with happy birthday or whatever the occasion may be and uh customize it john we know that uh the cheapest puzzle you make or offer cheap is the word it costs around 900 dollars. what is the most expensive puzzle you've ever produced for someone uh, fifty-three hundred, five thousand three hundred. Wow. Oh, and that had uh, a, a long saying in it, and I, I wrote it all out, and then I put all the children's uh, names and and the date, mm. was what whatever the date was, nineteen eighty, and I wrote it all out. So all of that takes a lot of time to uh, design it into the wood. What sort of wood do you use uh, in creating the puzzles? Is it always the same sort of wood, or do you experiment with different types of woods? Yeah, it's a it's a mahogany-backed uh, plywood. It's uh, four-ply, and I find that uh, with the pine wood, with the mahogany backing, uh, it gives it a nice finish on the back, and it also uh, makes it a little uh, stronger. John, to help uh, our listeners get a better picture of your puzzles, they all have irregular edges, right? I think we're used to that kind of rectangular look to a picture puzzle. Right, and and that was what differentiated them from the other puzzles. They were free-formed edges as opposed to rectangular, square. So here they uh, had no clue whether the edge <laughs> went and finished it would could be in the shape of the of an elephant or it could be in the shape of a cathedral so you have irregular edges uh there is no accompanying pictures so that people have some idea of what they're putting together so where, where i was going with that question is you make it as difficult as possible for people putting the puzzles together did you get a lot of angry mail from people <laughs> saying you're too hard I never give out my address or telephone number. <laughs> you shouldn't either. Most of the people who are spending this kind of money on puzzles are fanatic. They want to uh, puzzle themselves to death. As I said some of them doing them upside down. You know? So like this Guernicker I was mentioning to you earlier, this Picasso, this is black and white. Mm -hmm. And this puzzle is uh, a thousand pieces, 1200 pieces in that area. And it's black and white. And if you've ever seen Picasso's uh, work, it's upside down and different directions, half a head here. So uh, these people love to be stumped. They torture themselves. <laughs> That's really. <laughs> I got a quick one here, John. How will you know when it's time to hang it up, quit making puzzles? 
when I make that same mistake that I made on Mrs. Rebson's back in the uh, 70s and start doing things uh, upside down and backwards, uh, then I know it's time for the home and uh, <laughs> hide from my kids so they don't put me away. <laughs> if you'd like to see some examples of PAR puzzles, go to their website, www.parpuzzles.com, and that's PAR spelled P-A-R. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.